All right. Well, good morning, Mountain View, and thanks for uh, joining with us again. We're working through the book of Acts, and uh, it's been pretty exciting to work through, and I hope that you're enjoying it too. Uh, The book of Acts is really about the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Disciples. It's also about the origin of Christianity, the beginning of Christianity. And whenever we take a look at the beginning of something or the origin of something, we learn something. And so in this case, we're going to learn something about what genuine Christianity really is. When it comes to Christianity, some people might say, you know what, I've tried it, it didn't work for me, and and they moved on. For others, there's this self-understanding what a Christian really is, that we're a Christian and we believe we're a Christian. We live in a certain way which determines we're a Christian. We believe in certain things which makes us a Christian, so we must be Christian. Many people assume they understand what a real Christian is and that a Christian must believe the doctrine and, and live a good life and, and love people and obey the Ten Commandments and, and attend church. And The problem is there's a lot of different issues with this kind of thinking. There's a difference between necessary and sufficient signs. And let me explain it this way. Some countries require that if you're a doctor, you have to wear a white coat. And at the same time, anybody else in society, anybody else in culture, anybody else in that country can wear a white coat if they wanted to. And so this means wearing a a white coat would be necessary, but not sufficient evidence that you're a doctor or not. And so if you're a doctor, you must wear a white coat, but but if you're not a doctor... You don't have to wear a white coat, or you could wear a white coat. And so if you're a doctor, you must wear a white coat, but just because you're wearing a white coat doesn't make you a doctor. I hope that makes sense for you, because this is what I know. To believe you're a Christian, a lot of people assume that we have to believe in certain doctrines. Well, the book of James, James writes, and he says, even the demons believe. Even the demons believe that. The demons believe in a triune God. The demons believe in a Son of God. They believe that Jesus died on the cross. And so it might even be possible that demons might be more certain about their beliefs than what we are. And so it doesn't mean that they are Christian, if that makes sense. So many assume that Christians must live a good life, but the problem with that is a lot of people live a good life. And so attending church, living a good life, these are sufficient signs, but they're not necessary. In other words, all of these are necessary, but they're insufficient traits of what a Christian really is. And what we get in the book of Acts, chapter 4, we start looking at how these disciples respond to their circumstances, and we begin to see for ourselves some very clear traits, some unique marks, some signs of what a real Christian actually is. And so we have to ask the question, am I a real Christian? Am I a real Christian? And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at four very unique, very very clear traits and signs of Christianity. And I think we're going to discover by looking at the early Christians, especially when they experience persecution, what these traits mean. If you remember the message last week, we began to see a shift. In Acts chapter 1 and in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 3, everything's going smoothly. Everything's going exactly the way that the early Christians wanted it to go. There's momentum, there was movement, the church was growing, people love Christians, the Christians had found favor with people, and in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 heads of household were baptized, and at the end of chapter 2, we read that God added to their number daily those who were being saved. And another 2,000 people believed in in, in chapter 4, and so they were growing in strength. They were maturing. They were building momentum. But look at Luke, look look what Luke writes in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It says, when they were released, 
they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And so in the beginning of chapter 4, Peter and John, they're arrested. Remember, they, they healed this crippled man, and, uh, and it caused a stir. People came to Jesus, believed in Jesus, but all of a sudden Peter and John are arrested, and their lives were threatened, and they're told, you must not preach Christianity anymore. And so the disciples now know for sure that there's going to be some persecution, that things are gonna, the tensions are going to rise, and there's going to be some heat, and, and that some of them are going to actually die if they continue to preach. And this was the first time that we see this new church, this new band of Christians facing Facing persecution and experiencing suffering. And the response, the response to all of this is, is noteworthy and, and it gives us some really clear marks of real Christianity. And the first one is this. First one is this. A Christian serves consistently. A Christian serves consistently, especially in suffering. In other words, true servants of God serve God for nothing in return. True servants don't serve God for what they're going to get out of it. In times of suffering, we see, we see if we got in a relationship with Jesus to get something out of it. We, we see for sure in the midst of suffering and hardship and difficulty and persecution, whether or not we got in a relationship with Jesus to get him to serve us, or whether we got in a relationship with Jesus to serve him, to serve him out of love and to serve him out of gratitude and to serve him out of thanksgiving and thankfulness for all that he has done for us. I think it's actually possible. It's actually possible that we can't see whether or not you possess the real marks of Christianity or not in the midst of when everything is going smoothly and perfect and life is easy. We see these traits show up. The real marks, the real traits, the real characteristics, the real signs of Christianity show up when things aren't going smoothly, when there's persecution, when there's suffering, when there are disappointments. And so when we look at verse 24, some of them, don't forget this, some of them know for sure they're going to die. They're going to be killed for their service to Jesus. They're going to be killed for, for speaking out about the reality that Jesus is alive. And so in other words, the suffering doesn't say, well, what good is this going to do us if this kind of thing happens? Look at verse 24. Look at their response. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and so we have to spend some time just unpacking this one verse. And so there's so much packed into it. And what I want you to see, that when the disciples heard that the, the religious leaders and the political leaders said, no more of this preaching Jesus resurrected from the dead stuff. No more of this. Their response is so noteworthy. Their response is so important because they didn't walk away from God saying, well, what good is this? We've devoted our lives to this, and now look what God is letting us go through. Instead, they drew nearer and closer and toward God, and they prayed. And it's really important to notice what they didn't pray for. I think the silence on some of these topics uh, speak volumes. They didn't, they didn't go to God and they didn't pray for change in their circumstances. They didn't go to God and say, would you change what's happening to us? Notice they don't pray for uh, protection. They don't pray for vengeance on their enemies. 
They don't pray for new elected officials. They don't pray for their comfort or their cough. They don't pray for a hedge of protection or traveling mercies. What we see in a few moments, no cheating in verse 29, we'll see what they pray for. But it's important to note what they don't pray for. When they know when they know for sure some of them are going to die, when they know for sure that some of them are going to face persecution and be put in jail and to have things taken away from them, when the, when the seemingly easy movement and momentum begins to experience opposition and persecution, what do the early disciples do? They pray. They pray. And it's important for us to acknowledge and notice that prayer is always the Christian's weapon. Prayer is the Christian's weapon. It's so important to note that and to know that and to believe that. Notice what they didn't do and notice what they did do. When things were hard, when things were difficult, when persecution was rising, when the tensions were increasing, when they were being told to shut up and to stop, what happened? They prayed because they understood that their greatest weapon was to gather together and to begin to pray. And so look again at verse 24. It says, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. But look what they said. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is powerful. They, they pray, Sovereign Lord. And what I believe is this phrase, Sovereign Lord, is the beginning of every Christian's journey. Unfortunately, the church has been notorious for converting people to a Savior while absolutely neglecting the Lord part. We, we like Jesus the Savior. I mean, Jesus saves me. Jesus is there for me. Jesus is to answer my prayers. Jesus is there to make my life easier. Jesus is to save me from things as if he's this cosmic Santa Claus and he can just, you know, do whatever I want done. This is not what Jesus came to do. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is unashamed to demand all of us to demand that we submit completely and totally and wholly and fully to Him so that He can run our lives and so that He can take us places unimagined. And so Jesus has to be both our Savior and our Lord. They're saying, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, God, You are so much bigger. You are beyond me. You are, you are God and I am not. Man, we have to acknowledge that when we face hardship and difficulty, our first response is the Christian's weapon should be always prayer. And the prayer should always be acknowledging that God is God and I am not. Verse 24 again, look at it and we'll go on. It says, when they heard it, they lifted their voice toward God together. They said, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and everything in the earth. It goes on. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. It is, it's so fascinating right here because what they pray is Scripture. They go back and they actually pray from Psalm chapter 2. This was one of David's prayers. This is when David is crying out to God and he's saying, why do the nations rage? David's crying out to God and he says, why are these, the, your people, why are they plotting in vain? And, and God, why in the world are the kings setting themselves and the rulers gathered together and why are they positioning themselves against you? And so they pray this prayer. And what I love about this prayer is the disciples pray Psalm 2. They, they apply it to their own situation, which I'll show you in a moment. But if you go back to Psalm 2 and you read God's answer to David in verse 4, this is what it says. 
is as he who sits in the heavens laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. I, I, I love this moment because David's crying out to God. He's complaining. He's saying, look at the kings. Look what they're doing. They're, they're coming against your anointed one. They're, they're fighting. They're rising up. They're raging. They're doing all of these crazy things. And, and, and basically, David's saying, they, they think they've got it all figured out. And, and they think they're so strong and powerful. But this is what God says. God says, <laughs> really? They forget I'm God. They think they're strong. They think they're powerful. They think they've got it all figured out. They think that they know what they're doing. They think that they're they moving forward and they, they're marching forward and they can accomplish whatever they want. But I'm God. And I'm still God. And I remain God. And I hold the world in my hands. And, and so they can think they're strong and powerful all they want to, but I'm God. And, and so God laughs. God laughs. I love what verse 27 says. Look at this. This is where they compare Psalm 2 to their own situation. They say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And so you can see this, this idea of rage and, and how they're gathering together against, right? And, and that the people plot in vain and they're crying out. They're like, Israel, the leaders, the, the religious leaders, the political leaders, they're, they're gathering together in vain. And then he talks about, they talk about in their prayer, the kings of the earth, talking about Pontius Pilate and, and, and the rulers, Herod, and how they are against the Lord, his holy servant, Jesus. They're against him, the anointed one, the one who God has anointed. And what I want you to know is there's nothing wrong with going to God and saying, God, here are my needs. As a matter of fact, Jesus taught us, ask for our daily bread. Ask God to give us our daily bread and to deliver us from evil. But what I want us to acknowledge is that these early Christians, they didn't go there. That wasn't their prayer. That's not what they did. And here's why. It was not what their primary relationship with God was for. And so how do we know we're really a Christian? We serve consistently, especially when things aren't going our way. We serve faithfully, especially, especially in suffering. When life goes in and out and when life goes up and down and, and when life goes bad and good, I have to ask myself in the good and the bad, in, in, in the great and the ins and the outs, all of that, I have to ask myself, am I serving God consistently? Am I serving Him consistently no matter what my circumstances are? Think about it this way. Have you ever had money and health and community and friendship and, and you went places with these friends of yours and you had fun together and money wasn't an object and health wasn't an object and you, and you did life together, but then all of a sudden you lost all of your money and you were diagnosed with cancer and, and you lost your community and your friends dropped like hot potatoes, what would you say? Likely you would say something like this, well, I guess they only cared about my money. I guess they only cared about having fun with me so long as I was paying for it. I guess they didn't mind, uh, they didn't really care about me and love me after all. I guess they didn't care about me, they didn't, they didn't like me, right? And all they wanted were the benefits of my friendship. And this is sometimes what we do with God. We're saying, God, you're my Savior. We want all these good things from you. We want you to bless our life, God. But God, when it gets hard, I'm out. God, if you, if you decide to send me persecution, if you decide to send me suffering and hardship and disappointment, and if things around me aren't going the way that I think they should go, then God, I'm out of here. Could you imagine 
having a group of friends do that to you, and yet that's what we sometimes do to God. See, we serve God consistently no matter what, no matter what. Something is wrong when we think, well, if God lets these bad things come into my life, if God lets these bad things happen around me, and it's not paying off anymore to serve God. It's not worth it anymore. Why should I stay? And what I want us to see here in Acts chapter 4 is when it got hard and the suffering exists and the the tensions rise and the persecution comes forth, they serve Him faithfully and consistently for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, for better or for worse. Why? Because they were devoted. The second mark that we see in Acts chapter 4 is a Christian knows God intimately. A Christian knows God intimately. And so another mark of Christianity is that we know God. Not just know Him, but we really know Him intimately. To know God is one thing, but to know Him personally is another thing. John 17 was this, Jesus' prayer, and this is eternal life, that they know you, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That we wouldn't just know, but we would really, really know Him. Such an important truth here to know God means that we have a personal relationship with Him. A personal relationship has two parts to it, personal and relationship. So let me explain it this way, right? Because the first part is personal and the second part is relational. The personal means that that we have met God, that we experience God, that we know God, that we have developed a relationship with God, that it is personal. And, And this is what happens often in our faith journey. We experience the same faith that our parents gave to us because we grew up in a Christian home. We grew up in a church and so we experience that faith. Or maybe that wasn't your story. You went to college, you met some friends, they were so happy and so excited that you decided to join this movement called Christianity too. But the problem was it wasn't personal. It wasn't personal. It was on the, on the coattails of your parents or of your church or of your friends. And so you hadn't personally met God. You met people who personally knew God. And so when, when life got difficult, when life got challenging, and when things started to happen and your faith was, was challenged, you crack and you realize you've never met God personally yourself. You don't really have an individual, personal relationship with God. And this is what I want you to know. A secondhand relationship, a secondhand experience of God is not sustainable. We have to know God personally, personally. And if you don't know God personally, we want to help you in that journey. We we want to help you, and you'll hear in a little bit how how to do that. But the second part is relationship. What is relationship? A relationship has two ways. Let's stick with the prayer theme for a moment. If all I do is go to God and say, God, you need to, I want you to, would you please? If we just go to God and we just tell Him our want list or our needs list, or the things that are bothering us, then the relationship is one way. But when we have a relationship with God, and we study God, and we understand who God is, and we begin to understand His characteristics, and His traits, and and, and how He works, and how He does things, then guess what? All of a sudden, all of a sudden it turns into a relationship. As a matter of fact, we can see that these disciples knew God intimately. How do we know this? Listen, the disciples are scared. They don't like what's going on around them. They're they're afraid. The tensions are rising. And what do they do? They pray. And we catch them not just talking to God, but what we catch them doing is responding to God. What do I mean by that? 
Well, they have this personal relationship with God. They've already studied God. They read Psalm 2. And, and so what do they do? They cry out, Sovereign Lord, and they use Psalm 2 as their prayer because they understand who God is. They have an intimate relationship with God. They know God. Their relationship with Him is personal. And so it gives them the ability to declare this in their prayer. Acts chapter 4, verse 28, the second part, says this. And so God, to do whatever your hand and whatever your plan had predestined to take place. What are they doing here? They're scared. They're afraid. And they're anxious. And so what do they do? God, zap us with courage. No. No. God, we're anxious, so fill our souls with inner peace. No. What they do is they strategically take on one of the characteristics or one of the things that God had revealed to them through the Scriptures. And what do they do? His character through His character and His wisdom and His goodness and His control that everything, although scary and although very, very uncomfortable and, and, and it will create suffering and disappointing, they believe with their whole heart things will work out. And so when we talk to God about who He said He is, guess what happens? There's healing that takes place in our hearts. When I go to God and I say, God, you're sovereign Lord, you're the creator of the heavens and the earth, you are in the throne and on the throne in the throne room and on the throne, and you hold the world in your hand, and God, you are good and you are you are gracious, and God, you are kind, and, and God, you love us so much that you sent your one only son to die for us on the cross. When we begin to talk about God in the beginning of our prayers, all of a sudden there is a healing that takes place. Praising God and acknowledging who he said he is heals. But when we go to God and we say, God, where are you? God, have you turned on the news lately? Hello, God, have you seen this COVID-19 thing? Can, can you see what's going on in Portland? God, where are you? What are you doing? Why, why aren't you taking care of this stuff? Do you see the difference? All of a sudden, there is no more healing in our heart. We become tense and we shake our fists. But when we approach God and we say, God, we believe you are in control. We believe you sent your one only son to die for us. We believe, God, that, that you are, are doing something. And we want to partner with what you're doing, God. And when we start to say these things, God, there's healing in our heart that takes place. They're letting God heal their heart with who he is. They want to know God intimately and what it's all about. And so this means that they have to continue to discover him. And we have to discover him. And we have to continue to get to know him more and and keep reading, and keep studying, and keep praying, and submitting to his lordship, doing the things that Jesus would do. And many of them, many of them watched Jesus die on the cross. They watched it. And when Jesus was crucified on the cross, they were shocked, and they were bewildered, and they thought Jesus' crucifixion was a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And yet they realized at this point that if Jesus had not died on the cross, their sins would not have been forgiven. They would not have known who Jesus really was. And so the cross, although horrible, it actually was really good. It was this massive greatness and this brilliant goodness. And, and, and it, it, a lot of great things came from this really horrible thing. And so what they understand now is that God works mysteriously. That's what they understand. 
And even though they could not have imagined anything good coming out of Jesus dying on the cross, guess what? They saw sovereign God wisely working everything out in his powerful way. And it looks like they might die and they're thinking we might die and bad things might happen to us and we might be persecuted and we might be having things taken from us. We might be put in jail, but guess what? Let us remember, let us remember who God is. And so look what they pray for. Here it is, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Man, do you see what's ironic about this prayer? This prayer of boldness, as they talk about Jesus, they say, God, help us, help us be bold, help us be courageous, help us continue to speak your word that Jesus is alive. It's so God-centered, and it's not me-centered. It's God, God, you are this, and we need this, and, and God, this, you're this. And too often, we look at God instead, we look at ourselves instead of God, and we say, God, would you please do this? I, I need this. What if the lesson here about knowing God is this? That if I look at God instead of my own needs, the byproduct of that is that I'm going to have my needs met. Why? Because that's who God is. When I go to Kenya, they say God is good all the time, and then they continue that chant with this, because it's in His nature, that's who He is. We sing the song, it's who you are, it's who you are. I'm loved by you, and I want us to believe when we know God and we understand this, if we look at God instead of our own needs, guess what happens? Our own needs get satisfied. The third, the third sign or the third mark is this, a Christian experiences God deliberately, deliberately. This is very comforting while at the same time incredibly challenging. Look at verse 31, it says this, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together, it was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the words of God with boldness. And we've talked about this for the past couple of weeks, but, but even last week, earlier in chapter 4, when Peter is charged and he's accused before the religious leaders and the political council, Luke says Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. When he approached the crowd to talk about the miracle of the crippled man, it, it, the text that Luke tells us that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He began to speak, right? In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them like wind and tongues of fire, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He began to speak. And so Luke seems to imply, though, that throughout the book of Acts that, that the disciples are empty. Or maybe they've sinned, or, or maybe they've fallen short, or maybe they've really messed up, and so the Holy Spirit's not with them. And what I want us to understand is there's no indication that the disciples were empty. There's no indication that they were filled with sin or they were having some other issue. What it does mean, so what does it mean, I guess is the question, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What we need to do is we need to go back, we need to look again at what Jesus said about the role of the Holy Spirit, what Jesus said the function and the job of the Holy Spirit was. Look at John chapter 16, verse 12 with me. It says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them or handle them, bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. 
and he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, and that the Father has is mine. All the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and give it, declare it to you. See, this is what I want you to know. The work of the Holy Spirit is always to make Jesus more meaningful to me. The work of the Holy Spirit is always to make Jesus more meaningful to you, to us. In other words, being filled with the Holy Spirit means He takes things that we kind of know, that we kind of understand. He, he kind of opens up the box or the mystery as Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, right? And He makes them real to us. He makes them real to us without fear. For example, think about it this way. The Holy Spirit makes God's love so real for us that we can receive His love without feeling shame and guilt. And so remember this, when God is present... And when we pray, and especially when we pray about the things that are on the heart of God, guess what happens? The earth shakes, both literally and figuratively, because God is on the move. God is doing something. And so when we experience God deliberately, when we're intentional about experiencing God, we are filled, we are made new and fresh. As, as the morning sun rises, God is beginning to do a new thing in us always, always, and we need to know that. So a Christian, a Christian serves consistently, especially in suffering. And a Christian knows God intimately, intentionally, and we experience God deliberately. The fourth one is this, a Christian is radically generous, absolutely radically generous. In a moment, we're going to read verse 32, and um, before we do, I want us to understand that often praying for boldness and then being filled with the boldness, there's something that happens. And so look at this in verse 32. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Oh man, this is powerful. And so the Christians, the Christians are filled with courage and, and boldness. And the next verse tells us that they started giving their money and they started giving their belongings away like crazy. And I think there is a connection between this courage and boldness and this generosity. And one of the obvious reasons is, is we're not more generous is because materialism and greed takes over. But I think there's another reason that we're not radically generous like the early church. The reason that we don't give away more is because we are scared. We're fearful. It's not stinginess. It's fearfulness. When we serve consistently, when we know God intimately, and when we're being filled with the Holy Spirit because we experience Him deliberately, we don't look at our savings account. We don't look at our investments and all that stuff because it gives us a false sense of security in the world. Understand it this way, our money is real when God is unreal. When God is not real to us, when He seems too far and too distant for us, then our money becomes a more tangible reality for us. But when God is real to us, guess what? We see money for what it is. And it's not a sense of security for us. When God, God is not spiritually and relationally real to our heart, then we hold on to our money because we're scared, because we need something, we need that security. But when God is spiritually and relationally real to our heart, we are able to give more of it away because we are not scared. So far in the book of Acts, the persecution has risen. Why? Because they're preaching. 
because they're telling people, Jesus is alive, he rose from the dead. The, the, the tensions are rising, the persecution and the suffering is going to increase. Why? Because they're healing people, because of the powers and the signs. You know why else the persecution is rising is because the early Christians are beginning to share their material wealth. Let me explain it this way. If I was Satan, if I was the enemy, I would give Christians and the church as much money as I possibly could. And I would give them as many possessions and belongings as I possibly could. You know why? Here's why. Because when we have everything we need financially, all of our possessions are enough for us, we have no need for God. If I was the enemy of the church and if I was the enemy of Christianity, I would give the church and Christians so much money so that they had absolutely no dependence on God because if I have everything I want and if I have everything I need, then I don't need God. Another reason is this, because, because I understand that if I'm the enemy of the church and I'm the enemy, enemy of Christianity and I give the church and the Christians as much as they can possibly have, I give them enough, it will divide them. How do I know this? Because Jesus talks about money and the heart and how it's connected to the heart more than any other topic. As a matter of fact, Jesus talked about the seeds being sown in Matthew chapter 13, and he talked about how some seeds are sown on good seal and soil, and some are thrown on rocky ground, and some are thrown on, on a hard path, but others are thrown in, in the thorns. And then all of a sudden, the disciples say, we don't understand that. So later on in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus specifically clarifies that the seeds that are sown among the thorns are choked out. Do you know why? They're choked out because of the cares of the world. The thorns are the cares of the world. Everything in the world that we care about suffocates our faith. And he says the thorns are also uh, the deceitfulness of wealth. When we put our trust and our hope and our savings account and our investments and all of these things, guess what it does? It chokes out our faith. And so if I'm the enemy, I want to give as many Christians and as many churches as much money as they possibly can because if I'm the enemy, I would give Christians and the church so much money because it would force them to focus on the here and the now and neglect the beyond us. That's why I think this is so important for us to acknowledge and see there is something that I've been teaching for a long time, that as soon as you give your heart to Jesus, you'll become generous people. But as I've continued to study and understand and learn Jesus, you know what I've learned? That Jesus often said, give away your money so that you have room in your heart for me. Now, maybe you're struggling in this whole faith thing. Maybe the words of Jesus would help. And listen, the gospel is offensive. The gospel challenges our thinking and our, and our greed and our materialism. The gospel challenges what we put in our heart as important. And my, my desires and my rights and all of these things, they challenge us. And so, so Jesus actually told a lot of people, go give away your stuff, give away your money, be generous so that you have room in your heart to follow me. We cannot give our heart to Jesus when our heart belongs to something else. We can allow let Jesus be Lord of our lives if our heart belongs to something else. And so we want to give away our money so that our heart will be free so that we can give it away for Him. Look at this, Acts chapter 4. Look what happens. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet. 
and it was distributed to each as any had need. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had an interaction with somebody who says, you know what? It was after we studied Luke chapter 2. They said, you know what? The early church sounds a lot like communism, and I don't know that I can handle that. I've never considered the early church to be something like a communist church, all right? And so it got me thinking. I don't believe it's communism. I believe it's community. Communism is this. It's when we say what is yours is not yours. It's everyone's. That's communism. But community, community says what is mine is yours. We do this together. See, one is imposed on you. The other one is a reaction to everything that Jesus has done for us. It's community. And maybe the place I've learned this the best is when I've gone to uh, Mexico or to Kenya. And I go to Mexico and, and I walk into a home and they say, Mikasa, Sukasa, what is mine is yours. Enjoy it, enjoy it. Because we're in this together. Nobody demanded that they do it, but they understood community. And, and so the early church, when they understand everything that Jesus did for them, what was their response? Their response was, what is mine is yours. We are in this together. And we don't like this very much. And part of the reason we don't like this is because we believe in the verse that says this. Well, the Bible does say, you know, God helps those who helps themselves. This is one of the most quoted Bible verses in our country. The problem, it's not in the Bible. It's not even a biblical verse. It doesn't exist. And so we stand back and we assume that what God said was, well, God helps those who help themselves. If, if they help themselves, then God will help them. It's not even a verse in the Bible. This was intense for the early church because the early church really believed that the church was going to be the nation Israel, that God was going to continue to build his kingdom through them and build this nation. And so what they were doing, the early church disciples, they understood Jerusalem, Judea. They didn't understand the ends of the earth. We'll get to that in chapter 10. But here's what happens. They believed so much that the nation was going to be the church that they did everything they could to fulfill every commandment, every law that was written in the Old Testament. So Deuteronomy 15 says, there will be no poor among you. And God declared that the Lord will bless their land if there's no poor among them. And so they understood that they were to strictly obey the voice of God, that they were to fulfill these commands. This was the drive. They were going to fulfill everything that was promised. What's our drive? Shouldn't it be as simple as Jesus gave it all? I can too. I skipped a verse on purpose. Because Luke is notorious for giving us these little nuggets of truth in the middle of something. And so if you look back at verse 31 and 32 and then 34 and 35, it's all about how they gave generously and what happened. Nobody had a need among them, but the power to do this was revealed to us in verse 33. This is what it says. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And grace was upon them all. Did you catch it? it the power and the truth intersect. What's the power? The Holy Spirit. What's the truth? The fact that Jesus is alive, the resurrection. And this is what I want us to hear yet again. And we've, we've been preaching it. We'll keep preaching it. If the resurrection is real, we will change. 
If the resurrection is real, it will change who we are. It'll change how we live. It'll change everything about us. Why? Because of what Jesus has accomplished. Because what Jesus has overcome. We can in the present, in light of the past, we can become who he wants us to become in the future. This is the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection inside of us. If the resurrection is real and Jesus actually accomplished conquering death, he can accomplish anything. He can do anything. Is there anything he can't accomplish today if he actually rose from the dead? I mean, sometimes it's like we look and say, okay, Jesus created the world, but he couldn't possibly use it to provide for us today. Really? We look at Jesus and we say, yeah, Jesus conquered death, but he, he, couldn't, he couldn't possibly be aware of the issues we're facing today or the trouble we experience today or the, the political unrest that we have today or, or he couldn't possibly deal with these things. Listen, if the resurrection is true, if Jesus really rose from the dead, if Jesus is really alive today and he's involved in everything that's going on, we can find our security in something so much bigger than what we can tangibly touch. So the question is, do you believe this? And if you believe this, is your life marked by these signs of what an authentic, real Christian is? Are you pursuing to know Him more? Are you continuing to serve Him no matter what? Are you encountering Him regularly and experiencing Him deliberately? And are you radically generous? Because if the resurrection is true, our life will begin to take shape and it'll begin to look a lot like Jesus. And so what, what is it that we believe? How has it changed you? In the midst of the chaos, the unrest, the suffering, what's your attitudes like? Are we like Jesus? When you watch the news, are you driven to your knees where you begin to pray first? Or do you shake your fist? Is your life look like the lives of the early disciples? Do they have these authentic characteristics, these authentic traits of Christianity? I want you to think about that as we sing this song.